Hi everyone, welcome to OCBC Insights, where we discuss the latest economic and credit trends and developments. My name is Andrew, an analyst with OCBC's credit research team, and I'm joined by the rest of the other uh, rest of the team in credit research, Izian, Hongwei, and Zerchi. So we did do quite a few podcasts individually uh, in the last 12 months, uh, and this is uh, one that we're doing all together uh, for the first time in, in quite a while. And we're going to catch up on recent developments in the uh, credit space. Hongwei, um, I'll start with you. So you've been calling for property price growth in 2021 to eventually end up near the upper end of our earlier estimates. Uh, maybe you can touch a little bit more on whether your expectations are still the same, uh, particularly maybe with the uh, announcement of the GDP uh, earlier today. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Um, looking at the GDP, uh, I came out with a few takeaways. I think first, I think the GDP came out stronger than expected. And then the other one is, of course, in terms of property price. Uh, the property price uh, for 1Q2021, the uh, URA price index went up by 2.9%. So what, what I feel is that I could be too pessimistic previously on property prices even. Uh, calling for a 5 to 8% kind of price increase uh, uh, was probably a bit too low if we analyze the number. Uh, because uh, if you think about 2.9% annualized, it's 12% uh, price increase. So um, the, the natural thing is to uh, try to understand, you know, why is there such a strong buying property? Uh, is it by real demand or is it by speculation? According to the Business Times article, I mean, circulated uh, recently, um, we can see that uh, part of the reason, ironically, that I feel, or rather interestingly, I feel, is due to uh, expectations that, the government will come in with property cooling measures. So if the government is you know, coming in with property cooling measures, technically price growth should slow or even come down. So why would people want to buy? Then the logical explanation is that those people who want to buy are the real buyers. They're not the speculators. So uh, that actually interestingly uh, leaves me with a couple of conclusions. One is that, uh, you know, uh, to for the property price to to, to continue uh, increasing at the today's rate is it sustainable? I would say yes, because these are real buyers. Then the next I would say is that will the government come in with property cooling measures to curb this kind of buying? To me, it's a bit uh, uh gray because I think uh the government's measures so far have been uh, from the angle of prudency, trying to curb out the uh, speculators. But if uh, measures would be uh roll out, you know, to curb the real buyers, then to what end should it serve? Yeah, so uh, if the government chooses not to act and let the property price run up, then that will actually run a risk of me, you know, uh, underestimating the actual price increase this year. Okay. Speaking uh, more on property and particular REITs, actually you've been covering the REITs quite uh, heavily over the last 12 months, both uh, the ups as well as the downs. Uh, we saw that uh, FH REIT called as perpetual uh, earlier this week, uh, despite challenges in the hospitality sector. Uh, I think you could touch on any updates to the outlook for this as well as the other REIT sectors? Yeah, so for SH REIT, initially our call was that it is not likely to be caught at first call, with the distribution rate resetting lower at around 3.5% per annum instead. But we were surprised that they were calling the pub. Yeah. Moving on to the other sectors within the REIT space, for the malls, we 
see them recovering from the pandemic. And also, we, ex- we are expecting the core central region to catch up with the suburban malls, which has been more resilient throughout the pandemic. We are also seeing retailers benefit from the pandemic embark on expansion and take up more space in the mall. Some examples are the likes of home furnitures as well as white goods stores. Broadly, tenant sales and footfall have been on an upward trend, though it's from a very low base. For so, the office sector... Sorry, so yeah. let me just interrupt this. So very interestingly, you mentioned that the white goods sales have actually done well. So that's kind of in line with real buyers buying property prices in, in, in that sense. So I, I just have one more clarification with, with Hongwei. You were talking about your property view, uh, which is 5 to 8% price increase, and now you're leaning towards the 8%. Does it mean that this is only this will only be true if there is no property curbs coming in? Oh, um, I would think that if the property curbs are light, then we could well lean on the 8%. If there's no property curbs, it could even un- overshoot that. Uh, however, if the property curbs, like as I mentioned, if it hits real home buyers, let's say if the loan-to-value ratio were to be drastically increased or the total debt servicing ratio were to be tightened a lot, uh, then yes, then then it could fall probably at the lower end of where I think uh, it will increase. Very interesting. Sorry, Stacey, back to you. Yeah, so apart from what we are seeing in the retail space, for the office side, um, demand, we expect demand to be broadly moderate as companies actively finalise their operations plan. And this, is, so this also goes back to the point about um, the residential side of things as well as the retail side of things where we see working from home spilling off to the other segments. So for the office side, firms such as those in the financial sectors have adopted a more permanent hybrid model and this has allowed them to reduce their real estate footprint. We also expect this to put a downward pressure on rent and possibly partially offset, though this may be partially offset by the incoming tech firms and family offices. Overall, we expect the high-quality office properties to remain attractive and maintain a somewhat stable performance, even as vacancy rates for the office sector across Singapore increase. Okay, so there's some positive and maybe some slightly negative uh, trends coming out from both the property and the REIT sector. Isian, you cover a lot of different sectors. Um, any views on what the overall sort of market outlook is and what investors can expect going forward? Okay, so just to share a little bit of background first of what happened in March because because and also you know first two weeks of April because we think some of this would still have a spillover effect in the coming month. Um, okay, so over the last few weeks we've seen a lot of idiosyncratic events both in the Sing space as well as the broader Asia dollar market. And in the Sing space, this is really concerning Credit Suisse uh, because they had uh, an issue with uh, the Green Seal Capital event. And also recently with the private uh, family office, which caused them to report a big loss at the company or expected to report a big loss for the first quarter of the year. So that spilled over into the same space because they are an issuer of perpetuals of bank capital instruments here. Uh, But that has since rebounded, although it, it dominated secondary flow quite a bit. And in terms of other idiosyncratic events, uh, we see antitrust concerns rise in China with Alibaba uh, and also... Huawei. 
Oh, yes. And also Huarong, yes, that's the big one that uh, we're still trying to get our heads around it. Uh, that's a company that is rated very highly by the rating agencies, um, but that's still an evolving situation. On top of that, uh, we see a lot of stimulus coming in from the US. So Biden has announced a $1.9 trillion spending. And on top of that, infrastructure spending. And what we are hearing out of the US is there will be more coming, and this time targeting social spending with potential knock-on effects on individual taxes. So with all this, the outlook on rates is still highly uncertain. Uh, while there is a lot of voice coming out to say that oh, it is a reflation trade, actually the market is not as uh, certain as that. So we do see some investors who don't believe in this story yet for the time being. But in any case, given that we do have the option to go down the credit curve in the SING market, uh, what the team is calling is still to have a more diversified pool, uh, which is tilted towards subordinated securities. So that is your corporate perpetuals as well as your bank capital instruments because the carry would still tend to outweigh any uh, price losses barring a default scenario. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you say that that is still our position. And going back to what you mentioned with Credit Suisse, they did have a very big uh, impact. They had a lot of negative headlines. The perpetuals actually dropped about four or five points. But since the announcement came out, which was almost US $5 billion in losses, uh, tied to this uh, Archegos uh, private family office, uh, the bonds actually rebounded to again now be above par, which shows that investors are still aiming to go for all those uh, instruments that have a higher yield. Um, and it also shows to an extent that uh, this, uh, this uh, development was somewhat uh, idiosyncratic and the impact was limited to Credit Suisse. But actually going back to what you mentioned with Huarong, although we're still trying to find out a bit more information, do you think that there is the potential for Huarong to actually have much more of a spillover or a contagion effect in the credit market? I think some of it has happened already. Uh, we, do, we, we saw that primary market issuances in Asia dollar has declined and also uh, some shakiness in the Asia dollar investment grade space for issuers coming out of China. And I think Tencent was reportedly trying to price 4 billion US dollars sometime this week, but that has been put on hold as well. Uh, and interestingly, Tencent is also in the very high investment grade space. So we do think that the, uh, the whole effect of Huarong has not finished yet, given that it also throws into question what will happen to bonds that are issued with a keep well structure. So, so that hasn't really played out fully yet in the market. And on top of that, um, offshore investors may have a very different outcome from onshore bond investors, given that the purpose of um, the use of proceeds is, is potentially different from the onshore investors. You also mentioned that the rates outlook is uncertain. So maybe going back to Hongwei, even though the rates outlook is uncertain, does that play much into what your expectations are for property prices? <laughs> um, I would say that um, for rates, I think we need to take into consideration uh, both the term structure and also in terms of the historical perspective. Um, given, given where rates were uh, trading at, maybe like let's say uh, 10 years ago, uh, today's rates environment, I would say, is still quite uh, uh, favorable for property buying. In fact, uh, home buyers can still borrow at quite a low and uh, decent rate. 
liquidity is still very flush and a lot of people still have uh, ample cash on hand. So then the other aspect to think about is also income. Uh, interestingly, I would say Singaporeans' household have quite a, a high income level. So the median income is over $9,000 per, per household. Yeah, so with that, I think uh, it's all going to point to a very supportive uh, market. Okay, thanks, Songwei. Thanks, Sichi. Thanks, uh, Ezian, for spending the time to talk to us on, on what's happening currently in credit markets. So we publish quite routinely, and you can find our research on the OCBC website. Uh, we hope to do this uh, on a monthly basis, and uh, we look forward to your continued uh, uh, listenership. Um, thank you for your time. This has been a podcast from OCBC Bank. Follow us on Spotify for more episodes like the one you've just heard.